Hey there, welcome to Takeaway with Sam Okus, a podcast from Nation's Restaurant News. I am Sam Okus, Editor-in-Chief here at NRN, and this is the show where I give you an all-access pass to the restaurant industry's most influential decision makers. This is a special bonus episode of Takeaway, and I am sharing a conversation that I had with Juwan George. He is the co-founder of food service technology investment firm and consultancy 858 partners. Juwan has a fascinating story where he was one of Olo's earliest hires, and he's had a front row seat to the explosion in new technology tools, strategies, and services over the past 16 years. Now he's giving back to the food service tech world through 858 Partners, alongside fellow co-founder Marty Honfeld and recent additions Jackie Berg and Seth Hall, all of whom are also Olo alums. This conversation with Juwan is like drinking from a fire hose. He offers a wealth of knowledge on the past, present, and future of restaurant technology with insights that will surely help you on your own innovation journey. To that end, if you want to learn more from Juwan and have a chance to connect in person with him, he's going to be one of our speakers at the upcoming Create Experience this October 1st through 3rd in Palm Springs, California. To join us in Palm Springs and go even deeper on technology innovation with Juwan and others, head to create.nrn.com to register for free. Jumping now into my interview with 858 Partners co-founder Juwan George. Also, don't bother sticking around for takeaways after this interview, as I have only one takeaway, and I'm going to give it to you now. Listen to this conversation multiple times. That's right. When you finish this episode, smash that play button one more time and maybe slow it down to 0.8x speed just so you can catch everything Juwan has to say. Enjoy. Okay, I'm here with Juwan George, the co-founder of 858 Partners. Juwan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Sam. Fired up to be here. Appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Uh, Juwan, I am really excited to see you in Palm Springs uh, here now as we record this about four weeks away. You're going to be speaking at Create and we're going to give a little bit of a preview getting into that here today in our conversation. So anybody listening who wants to get more of Juwan, that's how you do it. Go to Create in Palm Springs, October 1st through 3rd. Uh, But Juwan, let's just start with you. Um, Tell me about your career and how is it that you got into the food service technology space? Yeah, for sure. Well, fired up to go to create Palm Springs in October. No better place. And uh, appreciate you again, you having me on here. So yeah, a bit of my story. You know, I joined Olo during the second semester of my senior year of college back in March 2007. And that was the fourth employee, the fourth hire in the business. So I was a B minus second generation Indian kid that didn't have clear direction on what I wanted to do. But I took a chance on a company that was chasing an idea that I totally believed in, that one day everyone is going to treat their phone as their remote control for their lives and order and pay for food at mass. And so for me, it was a 15 and a half year adventure there that I would break up into three chapters. So that first chapter is what I would label finding product market fit. And that was from the years 2007 all the way through 2013, a chapter in which it took almost seven years to get from $0 to $1 million in ARR. So we were uh, based in New York City at the time, one of the earliest tech companies in in New York City. And uh, during that time, we were predominantly this 12-person company of people, friends of mine now, 
in their 20s, just simply ahead of its time with this B2C platform that we were schlepping. Think about a marketplace for pickup. And you know, they say your 20s are for learning. And uh, we failed over and over and over <laughs> again and should have closed up shop many, many times. But you know, our theme song during that era was Journey, Don't Stop Believing, because we all saw the light at the end of the tunnel. And eventually, you know, we found that fast-moving water in a customer out of Texas, which allowed us to take this, what was really a fledgling B2C business at the time, into a B2B2C business, a platform. Mm. And we got our first major win with a company, Five Guys Burgers and Fries, that really helped us to find that elusive product market fit. And that's what every startup hopes for. And that unlocked really the second chapter. Chapter two, I'd call it the rocket ship years, uh, 2013 to 2019. It was my favorite chapter in the journey. And it was a chapter in which we took the company from a million dollars roughly to $45 million in ARR. And so during that period of time, you know, we were doubling the company every single year. And really we became at Olo the gold standard and enterprise e-commerce ordering and introduced new modules that were revolutionary and groundbreaking for the industry, largely around third-party delivery. And that's right around the time it was coming up, right? So think about mm. a product called Dispatch. You know, we treated gig fleets like DoorDash and Uber kind of like UPS and FedEx, right? So allowing customers to order on brand and using them for their couriers to keep them busy. And then products like Rails, which took the tablets off the front counters of the restaurants and essentially had that integrated into the point of sale. And that's what propelled us to really take the lead and just blow past you know, dozens of competitors at the time. But we largely focused on the enterprise side of the market. Think about 50 locations to 3,000 locations. So not the small guys and not the big guys, that mighty middle. And uh, we worked exclusively with restaurant brand kind of franchisors from a contracting level instead of like going directly to franchisees to sell. So you know, during those uh, six years or so, I basically lived on an airplane as an individual contributor. I was doing the majority of enterprise deals for Olo. So many deals uh, or rather many visits to, you know, think about Dallas and Atlanta, Orlando, LA, Columbus. These are the cities that you need to be at once a quarter if you're a restaurant tech company, if you're doing it right. So that kind of uh, mm -hmm. doubling the company really led to chapter three. And I'd label that for me personally, going from an individual contributor to a leader and for the company going from a private offering to a public offering. And so, you know, this was 13 years into my journey at Olo, uh, an individual contributor role. And I never really had to manage any people, nor did I want the responsibility, by the way. But I remember getting that call from my former boss, Marty Honfeld, now current business partner at 858. Um, and he was driving his car cross country for a personal move him and his family were making from Chicago to San Diego. And somewhere, I think in Utah, he convinced me to take the next step in my career and take on this leadership role. But it was an honor really to get the keys to the Porsche handed to me in January, 2020. And man, you know, did we put some mileage on the car that year? So you know, 2020, yeah. I think about that as, you know, it was my first year as team lead. We all know what happened in March of 2020. You know, Olo went from what was really already must have tech to mission critical tech. And really at the peak of COVID-19, I still remember, you know, this call, this earnings call from Brinker, um, Wyman Roberts, their CEO, stating that 70% of their transactions 
for Q2 were coming through the Olo platform. And that's what we were seeing like across the board for our customers with many brands doing upwards of 100% of sales. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was, a, it was a dark time, uh, you know, in our industry, but I'm still so proud of that, of our industry, right? And I'm still so proud of our customers and mostly proud of our team really for stepping in and stepping up. Um, and so from my seat, you know, I, I finally took a breath, I felt like in December and looked up and looked at the scoreboard. You know, we took 14,000 new locations that we added to the platform and we took the company from $45 million to $98 million in ARR at the end of that year. So it was the most impactful year in the company's history. And, you know, after this record-breaking 2020, you know, Olo went public on the New York Stock Exchange in March of 2021. And so for me, that was like the Mount Everest moment, right? Like uh, the American startup dream, like seeing this thing go from zero dollars all the way to IPO. And, you know, over the last decade, there's only been really a few restaurant tech companies that have gone public. You think about Mm -hmm. Toast, you think about DoorDash, Square, Uber, and Olo. And really, Olo was the only one that did it as a B2B2C enterprise-focused company. So, you know, I operated in the publicly traded life for nearly 15 months, um, you know, acquired two companies in the process. So we added to our offerings, uh, beefed up our go-to-market team. And, you know, when it's time, it's time, right? It's time to put an exclamation on the sentence. And that's what I did. I was able to hire my successor from externally and hand her the keys to the car just as we were approaching $200 million in revenue. And that was nearly a year ago today. So, you know, listen, I'm proud proud of the result. Uh, Yeah, the story of my career is definitely intertwined with the story of Ola. Like, there's no other way to put it. You know, unlike the other millennial friends I have, and I know, you know, I stuck with one company from the time I was 21 and really had no business experience, learned everything on the job and left as a 36-year-old data two with this story behind me. And so Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have done it any other way. Um, The outcome was really never guaranteed, but I think we all had a, a belief in each other as a team and we were ready to win. And I think that's what we did. You know, we won 71% of the enterprise market. That's what customers uh, ultimately became uh, of Olo. And the stat I'm proudest about though, of my entire tenure is that we kept a 99% customer retention rate, right? Mm. We built this high trust company and it's ultimately that relationship capital now to do what we're doing today with 858 partners. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, to be a part of that story and that journey with Olo, which is obviously so prevalent today in the restaurant industry, an incredible perspective you've had. So you take that into your second chapter now with 858 Partners, and you got that phone call from Marty. Now he's your business partner. What are you guys trying to accomplish with 858? What was the goal here? Yeah, so, you know, towards the end of last year, you can only sit at this desk for so long and play golf for so long. And, you know, the opportunity <laughs> came to partner up with my former CRO, who I referenced earlier, Marty. And in my opinion, you know, Marty is the second most important person in Olo's history, really behind our founder and CEO, Noah Glass, right? So it was irresistible to try and recreate some of that success, but this go around, really own it and have agency in that process. So, you know, when Marty and I first got together, we just got on the phone, right? We got on the phone with three groups, the restaurant brand stakeholders, the restaurant tech executives, and the institutional restaurant investors. I think we were hearing a lot of pitches for what we think of as really non-essential, nice-to-have tech. And there wasn't a lot of attention being paid to the must-have and mission-critical tech 
to really solve the problems that our restaurant brand stakeholders were telling us they were having, right? So yeah. we decided that this spelled opportunity for us. And that's where 858 was born, you know? So our objective is really to partner with tech companies in the opportunities that we identify. And generally that could mean one of two things, right? So the first is this investment practice that we've created. And this is where 858 leads an investment, usually with participation from industry insiders, a syndicate there. And our goal to start off was to invest in one to three companies in this manner. So not a lot, right? But one to three companies. Um, admittedly, though, this side of the business has been challenging. And it's not due to a lack of interest, but rather due to the current state of the markets, right? And valuations. Mm -hmm. And you know, transparently, you know, we experienced a setback at the start of the summer, you know, a deal that we spent a lot of time on and we were leading an investment for, unfortunately, uh, fell apart at the one yard line. And I'm mm. still recovering from that, I feel like mentally, but you know, these deals take a lot of time. And so given our time, there was two of us, it's limited. You know, our background is really not professional investors. And so you know, it's a tough moment to like strap on the training wheels. So it's all about prioritization for us. And we've had a big offset in the form of demand on the other side of our business, which is the advisory practice. So I'd say that's where largely the focus has been and will go for the foreseeable future. So on this advisory practice, you know, this is where 858 acts as an advisor to a company on a fee basis. And ultimately, we're helping uh, on commercial, we're helping on strategic matters, go to market matters, and board level initiatives that the companies are given. So nine months in, you know, we had our first customer in January, a company called Nash that's in the space. And now we've got nine clients and growing. Um, so last month, we took uh, a meaningful step in our own journey, and we brought on Jackie Berg, who was the former head of marketing at Olo, and Seth Hall, who was the former AVP of enterprise sales at Olo, uh, to really beefen up our team. And so Jackie, you know, her reputation precedes her, but she's leading now the brand and marketing practice at 858. You know, she was Olo's first marketing hire, and she built and scaled Olo's brand and marketing org from the Series B stage all the way through two years post IPO. So she is uh, largely responsible for you know, Olo's voice, uh, positioning, the brand. And importantly, she was also the creator of the Beyond Four conference. It's an industry conference that Olo threw annually for digital leaders. We'd funny enough get together in Palm Springs every February or March. And yeah. you know, in my opinion, while we were throwing it, it was the best restaurant conference because there was no vendors. The community can come together and just talk. Uh, and it was incredible to watch uh, see unfold. So that's Jackie, True. right? And now you've got Seth, who is now leading the go-to market practice at 858. You know, he led Olo's East Coast enterprise sales efforts. Um, Seth's well-regarded in the industry. He played a massive role uh, in Olo's growth. And, you know, Seth's per personally closed more restaurant deals than most restaurant technology companies do in our, in our space in a lifetime, right? So mm -hmm. you know, we got that gang back together. You know, the team responsible for positioning and executing Olo's enterprise plan is now focused on really guiding the next wave of restaurant tech companies. So uh, sure. I feel like, you know, listen, we got a lot of things right during our time, but plenty of things wrong, you know, but I think we also spent a lot of time building Olo the right way. And it wasn't this overnight success, right? It was 15 years in the making. And our goal is to help our portfolio companies, you know, like really skip past that, right? They don't need 15 years in order to find the success and try to accelerate that by sharing our learnings, our lived experiences and our playbook so that they can take a market leadership position in their respective category, just like we did.
Yeah, that's incredibly exciting. Obviously, Future Bright, and you know, I, I know in the restaurant industry, technology is just constantly evolving, and it feels like there is just kind of always a need because I think restaurants, in particular, is what's around the corner, what's around the corner, and you're constantly adapting to that need. But as you see it, what do you, what do you think is the biggest need in this market that you're serving, and wh why does that mm -hmm. need exist? Yeah, as in, you know. No one needs another consultant at the end of the day, right? But our ideal customer profile is, you know, a technology company that's focused on the back of the house, that has product market fit, has the right leader, that has competition in the space, and they want to get better and really have repeatability in the mid-market and enterprise side of the restaurant market. Like, that's who we want to work with. And for those companies, you know, we want to give them our tried and true go-to market playbook, you know, largely across their sales their marketing, and their customer success functions. And then also for our restaurant brand contacts, really 858 is this trusted back channel, and it's an advocate for companies to build solutions, get their problems resolved, and try to solve what's upcoming, right? So you know, I spent the first, I'd call, 15 and a half years really on the front of the house. Think about ordering, you know, third-party delivery, loyalty, UX. And that's where the last California gold rush of restaurant tech was. But this yeah. moment in time really calls for technology companies to operate in a lean and efficient way, really for the foreseeable future. So I think with that directive, our background pairs really well. Ola was the most efficient sales story for the entire era. You know, we carried mm -hmm. a sales to re uh, revenue expense ratio of only 8%. So that's literally the single most efficient sales team of any sales team in SaaS history. And wow. uh, that's kind of what we came with, right? And in total, you know, we burned $6 million over the course of 15 years to achieve $122 million at the time of IPO. So you know, we executed on this, right? Like mm -hmm. we executed this once in a generation, what we believe success story that we believe we can also help the right companies find that extraordinary success. And, um, I'd say what we're not doing is like, we're not trying to be your outsourced sales team. And we're not just opening up our Rolodex and calling our, our restaurant contacts, but rather we want to share this playbook, right? The tactics we use, you know, how we navigated the restaurant conference scene, you know, the commercial best practices, how to navigate specific brands that we actually won, and really the growing ecosystem of partners that's uh, burgeoning. And then really collaborating on what demand gen looks like in 2023 and beyond. So in conjunction with our launch, we actually you know, assembled this uh, advisory board. And this advisory board is made up of 25 executives across 30,000 locations and every single service model. And so that's what gives us this edge, right? We earned a lot of trust, I think, from many restaurant brand stakeholders because we never screwed them. You know, we were digital advisors, digital therapists even to them in the process, and we retained the role as we left Dolo. So ultimately, you know, we want to help our restaurant brand contacts and our friends find solutions to their problems. So yeah. um, as I said before, kind of the front of the house was the last era. We feel like the back of the house is this uh, next era. And we've organized that back of the house and kind of carved it up into 23 different arenas. So uh, think about, for example, kitchen display systems, professional services, interoperability tools to manage all these restaurant tech platforms, you know, computer vision, AI sensor in infrastructure, and more. And so our goal in each of those arenas is not to back two competitors, right? It's to back one. 
And let's see if mm-hmm. we can't influence the outcome of that specific race that's happening. So we just don't see anyone in the market doing what we're doing. So we came here to play again and we came here to win. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess we're kind of related to this too. I mean, and, and thinking you've got this advisory council, I mean, the, the, the perspective you get of this $1 trillion industry in the U.S. restaurant industry yep. to understand kind of what's going on out there. I guess if I, 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 w- I should take a step back and ask you just generally, what do you think of the state of food service technology today? Because as I mentioned, it's constantly evolving. People are asking about it all For the sure. time. But if you were to kind of gauge the temperature of the industry right now, what would you say that where is it at today? Yeah, well, I think listen, there's some challenges, no doubt. But there's also some opportunities. So, you know, let's maybe start with the challenges that we're hearing sure. across three different brands or three different groups, rather. Think about the restaurant operators. Think about the restaurant tech companies and think about the capital markets, the restaurant tech investors. So operators, let's start there, right? I'd say in addition to the day-to-day pressures and an already tough business, you know, the operators have a bit of tech fatigue at this point, right? There's operator fatigue on the dashboard side. There's $99 a month fatigue. Now it's like $199 a month per service per location. And there's a feeling that they bought too much tech when in reality, of course, they'll need more, right? But they bought disparate systems that don't work too well together. And I think they're also having a tough time retaining talent for managing these platforms whilst having a, a labor shortage, right? At the store level. Yeah. So that same operator could barely open up their email without literally getting dozens of new emails from new vendors every single day trying to sell them something. And they don't dare step foot into a restaurant conference without a half a dozen loyalty providers trying to sell them a new loyalty scheme, right? So I think they're fed up. Um, And so that's kind of what the state of the restaurant operator is, kind of moving to the restaurant tech provider. Unlike while we were building Olo, this is a tricky time for most. You know, the signal to noise ratio is just highly problematic. And the restaurant tech companies are just not getting through to the buyers. And the buyers have more or less implemented a buying freeze on the nice to have solutions. So my reference point is uh, Britta Rosenheim. She put out this 2023 uh, restaurant tech ecosystem wheel. And spoiler alert, you know, there's over 250 companies on that wheel. So again, yeah, 250 companies that, yeah. sell, sending you know, a dozen emails a week, uh, it's problematic. So there's a lot of solutions to a lot of problems. Some of them are really good, by the way, but most of them don't meet the moment. And most restaurant technology companies are just not hitting their goals across the board at this time. So they're praying that they could go to a restaurant conference and that's going to change the outcome. But in most cases, that's not, right? And mm-hmm. so that's, that's, I'd say, on the restaurant uh, tech side. And then the last cohort is the restaurant tech providers, or rather uh, the restaurant tech investors, right? So that's mm-hmm. an incredibly, it's an incredibly appealing space, the restaurant industry, right? It's a massive total addressable market, but most of them, they just don't understand the space and the players in the space and how it works. So right yeah. now, I'd say many investors are stuck and they're dealing with a mixed bag of companies in their portfolio. They've got you know, companies that are doing well, but are running out of capital and they don't have a path to profitability. But the majority of their investments are companies that are not doing well and are running out of capital. And they're dealing with the spending freeze, right, on the uh, on the brand side. So in both instances, these companies are up against a clock to survive. So, you know, you look at the last, uh, let's call it 2019 to 2021, we call that the ZERP era, the zero interest era. 
And it was the high flying days, right? If you're a restaurant tech company and you could show a pilot with a chicken sandwich chain or a pilot with one of the large QSR burger brands, you could raise capital at rich valuation and you can hire your team by the dozens. But fast Mm. forward to today, um, you know, it's a super difficult time to raise capital. It's, there's a lot of dry powder on the sidelines. Companies have been forced to do more with less. You see across the headlines in the industry, reduction forces and valuations have really come back down to earth. And I still remember at its peak, there was this online ordering company doing less than $10 million in ARR and they raised $50 million at a $250 million pre-money valuation. And that same company, by the way, today is probably worth half of that or less. So that's really bad for those investors, of course, that that invested in the last, last round. But of course, for the employees of those businesses, the stock grants are worthless if they join after that raise. So there's what we believe to be a reckoning moment coming from this company, but also many companies, it's coming for their investors, it's coming for their limited partners, the ones that invested into those funds over the next 18 months. You know, companies just didn't have the right hygiene from a finance and governance perspective. And ultimately, it's going to lead to their demise. And at the end of the day, it's their customers, right, that are going to be looking for new tech providers in the process. So, you know, those are uh, really the challenges that we see. But at the same time, with challenges, there comes opportunities in these markets. And, you know, kind of going back through that same cohort, think about now the restaurant operator. You know, it's a great time to get fit. You got to get your house in order. You got to understand what's nice to have tech. And you got to understand what's must-have tech. Um, mm. I'd say, you know, you've got to survey what tech looks like in the brands that you look up to and you admire. And you got to also think about game planning now, right? So it's August, September for 2024 initiatives. Um, you know, with the companies that you have the most strategic relationship with, you should be doing executive business reviews. And if your initiatives match up to their roadmap, you know, get them to commit contractually to milestones and dates if you want to go with them. I think, mm. you know, in the process, you should also try to take a market landscape and make sure you have the right set of partners that need to, that get, that need to get you to where you need to go. And then, um, you know, finally, it's a really interesting time for, you know, negotiation, right? So no tech company wants to lose customers at this stage. So right. you should think about as an operator, Sharpen your pencils and negotiate your contracts where you believe you have leverage. So I think those are the opportunities from the operator perspective. Now, for that restaurant tech company perspective, you know, first off, if you're a uh, must-have product that meets the moment, you should call 858. We would love to work with you. But no, ser- seriously, though, you know, love find, the plug. Uh, love the plug. <laughs> got it. You got it. But, yeah, you got uh, it. No, seriously. Um, you should, you know, really find ways to put your foot on the gas while not spending in excess and you should do more with less. You know, if your product isn't nice to have, and again, that's the majority of the market, that first step is admission. You know, that's okay. I remember Olo, it was a nice to have product really from the years 2005 all the way to 2013. So those years, you got to hunker down. You got to stay lean. You got to spend frugally. You got to identify the right team members that you have to make sure that they're bought into the mission. And you got to find the right external distribution partners that um, really can help you, right? Because you may not have that sales force. Um, right. And then 
think about you know really trends that are happening in the general consumer market and see if it makes sense to actually pivot your company right to match one of those value props. That's what we did in the year two thousand eight, uh, while at Olo. And so mm. the the final advice here I'd say for the restaurant tech companies it's it's not uh, a bad idea to give up at least for the restaurant industry. So you should also explore other verticals just to see if your product makes more sense elsewhere. Right. Um, and then the last thing is really, again, going back to that restaurant tech investor side, you know, um, if you're a seasoned investor that, op- that really invested at the highs, why wouldn't you invest at the lows? You know, the best companies were founded during downturns. Think about Uber, think about Square, think about Instagram. You know, so you should understand as an investor, a company's burn multiple and their path to the next milestone or profitability and understand and make sure that you have the tech companies you're invested in doing deals at the corporate level and not just some franchisee level. And then, you know, last thing here is, you know, as they say on the All In podcast, you know, let your winners ride. Um, mm. You should spend more time and open up your calendars and networks for the companies that you're most excited about. So that's from our perspective at the 858 side, the state of the state, from the challenges to the opportunities. Uh, you, you mentioned the word trend, and it's, it's so interesting because, I mean, it, there's no industry more trend dependent than, I think, food service, right? But then within yeah. food service technology, I mean, you've got a trend within a trend, and, and it's obviously difficult for restaurants to keep up with all the trends going on. And it's expensive when you're going to invest in any of these technologies. So I'm curious if you could unpack that that idea of what are the trends out there today mm-hmm. in food service tech? And I mean, are any of them misguided or, you know, maybe just sort of a novelty? Yeah, so, you know, I'd say on the trend side, so I definitely hear you on the restaurant industry. It's funny. I remember the trends in food, right? The Better Burger days, the Froyo oh, yeah. days, the Poke days. And now uh, I'm not sure where we're at, but on the restaurant tech side... <laughs> the operating platforms versus the point solution. So I'll point you to this trend. Yeah, I think I'll give you my at least millennial perspective here, being in the industry about two decades and having lived through the last restaurant tech cycle. So coming up, my first decade in the industry, right around that 2008 to 2010 timeframe, the point of sale company really was the center of the ecosystem, right? So I'll pick on NCR for this example. You know, they captured a ton of market share for their core products, and they were a big, capable company, really with unmatched distribution engines and reseller networks. You know, straight up, you know, they just did a great job, right? But, and at the same time, like, if you were a restaurant executive, CEO, CFO, you'd often consult with your point-of-sale company on what's happening in the market, and then you'd just go with them with the add-on module because you had one throat to choke, and they had bundling and pricing power. So customers would just add on a new module from these point-of-sale companies, and the provider there would just add on some nominal fee or even just give it away a lot of times just to block off the best-of-breed competition. And, you know, as they signed up for a bigger role, this is where the first generation of of point-of-sale companies really started to tumble. You know, the contracts became too big. I think they got a bit cocky. The products they would release just didn't catch up with the times. And I think back to the dreaded TV VCR combo from the 90s, right? Like when the VCR stops working, you hate the whole device. And that's what led to the proliferation of point solutions over the past decade, right? So when we were 
building Olo, you know, it was a point solution. We had this digital ordering product, but we had a better digital ordering product, right? Than the point of sale companies. And often we would displace and replatform their, uh, their online ordering module. So you go down the list of offerings, lots of examples there, you know, loyalty companies, back of the house scheduling companies, kitchen display systems, HR and staffing tools, companies like Hathaway, Punch, QSR automations, crunch time, hot schedules, you know, others like that really became the category leaders in their vertical from a best of breed standpoint. So Mm -hmm. now you fast forward to today, right? We're also now again in the midst of an economic slowdown akin to that 2008 to 2010 uh, era I referenced earlier. And there's a new wave of operating platforms. You know, companies like Toast, Olo, Square, Par, you know, and everyone is in a digital arms race and trying to do more with their existing customers. So it's yeah. a super tense time. Yeah, I'd say there's a lot of friction in that part of the market, a lot of frenemy behavior we call and partners that are actually true competitors in many of the same account. I think that's going to lead to a lot of finger pointing and uh, it's going to lead to a lot of deception over the next couple of quarters. So with all this frenemy uh, frenemy behavior happening on the operating side, going back to the point solutions, they're just trying to get the attention, right, of the buyers. And in addition to trying to get the attention of the buyers, they're trying to get the attention of the operating platforms and they're stuck. They're just not having luck and they're having to deal with hoops and jumping through fees and tolls just in order to get attention. So, you know, there's an argument that right now, right, that the pendulum has already swung back to the operating platforms and that they're at a massive advantage. You think about their distribution, their balance sheets, their large R&D kind of teams and budgets, their ability to bundle, and then they've got existing customer relationships. So the next, uh, let's call it 12 to 18 months, may prove super interesting from an M&A perspective. You know, you've got DoorDash sitting there, sitting on $3.5 billion in cash. The Toast is sitting on a billion dollars in cash. Olo, yeah. 400 million. And all of them have publicly traded equity, although I'm sure all of them would like to see that value increase, right? But you know, from my perspective, it's a great time to put some of that cash and that equity to work. Each of them have these rich partner ecosystems so that they can actually see firsthand with their customer base what trends are happening, right? There's must-have technology partners in their ecosystem that are just available at a fraction of their value and really could help them do more with their existing customers and push their lead further to try to get to the ultimate goal, prime vendor status. And so that's uh, what we believe to be the trends. Um, so, so yeah, lots happening for sure. Man, th- those of us outside the food service tech world hearing that, I'm just like, I, I had no idea there was such a battle going on, but I, I appreciate uh, the frenemy perspective. That's a, that's a, <laughs> a better way to look at it. The fre- frenemy war, you might say. Um, yep. So, Juwan, you got you mentioned something earlier about kind of your at eight five eight. You guys are really kind of honing in specifically on sort of the back of house solutions. Um, tell me more about that. Why why is back of house so important to you guys? How are you kind of working in that space? Yeah, uh, for sure. So first off, shout out to Joanna on your team at NRN for covering this trend so well for over sure. the past few months, and really enjoyed reading her work. Uh, but yeah, you know, 2023 has been labeled by most technology companies as the year of efficiency. So growth right. has largely stalled. Um, COVID was both really good for the industry because it showed how resilient the industry is and was, 
But it's also, it was also really difficult for the industry because of the labor shortage, because of rising wages, you got high turnover, and you've got inflation on top of that. So listen, we're not ignoring the fact that the back of the house is literally what's got to drive sales and that guest experience has to be number one. You know, that said, it's a bit more of the same there. And it's an optimization of your existing stack of tech providers. So what does that mean? Like, think about better conversion rates. Uh, think about, you know, adding digital wallets to your digital pr uh, platform, a front-end provider potentially, you know, shifting consumers from marketplaces to first-party channels so that you can own the data and do more with them. And then supercharging your loyalty platform really with a CDP, a customer data platform, and trying to activate that 5 to 10% of your guests that are most loyal to you and spend the most. So that's what's happening there. And it's a bit of, again, the same of what I saw a year ago. But that said, you know, while the front of the house has been in the spotlight, and I think it's received the majority of both investment dollars from a brand and their marketing budget, but also general investment as a category, the back of the house just received nowhere near the attention and it, or, or really spend. And it feels like it's still run on pen, paper, and instinct. And so yeah, that's the opportunity, right? Initiatives that can directly lower operating costs, largely food and labor, and really boosting employee productivity to make their jobs easier, and eventually the restaurant less reliant on that. So um, you know, that's what gets us excited, right? This new wave of new companies address, addressing these like age-old problems. And so, for example, you know, repairs and maintenance. That in a restaurant is the third most expensive line item. I think it's something like 3 to 4% per year. And mm. one of the companies in our advisory practice called RESQ, they directly provide a solution here to the mid-market and enterprise. They've tagged 70,000 pieces of equipment across 5,000 locations. And historically, warranties, you know, maintenance contracts, repairs, they're being manually tracked. And there's no great SOPs in place. And that leads to overspending in that category. And it leads to service providers being dispatched for issues that can easily be avoided. And I think yeah. something like 85 to 90% of brands are just doing nothing here. So it's easy, low-hanging fruit opportunity for a franchisor and for a franchisee. Um, another opportunity we think about in back of the house to make it more efficient is this concept of digital kitchen orchestration. So this is largely related to you know, kitchen display systems, computer vision, and capacity management. So as a, uh, a long-time digital ordering aficionado, you know, I <laughs> nearly exclusively order ahead for pickup or delivery from my favorite restaurants, as you can imagine. And uh, this restaurant, for this like experience for me, still, though, is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. You know, first off, let's talk about order accuracy. I can easily say that it feels like a quarter of the time that I get my food for takeout, there's a problem. Yeah, you know, they forgot my salsa or they put in chicken instead of beef. And so mm -hmm. there's always problems with my order, I see. And then the second off is the order's never ready on top, right? So most of the time, if I go in for pickup, you know, I'm either too early or I'm too late. And I'm sitting there kind of twiddling my thumbs. No one's talking to me. No clear instructions on where to go. And so we feel like this one is ripe. And it's a core thesis for us here at 858. And um, the, the show that I think about, it's where my mind goes, is... Uh, there's a scene in The Bear on FX uh, sure. in season one where the chit printer is just 
you know, back of the house is printing all these tickets from online ordering so customers. Stressful. So right? stressful. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Like it's the lunch rush of in-store customers in that scene. You got the phone literally like going off the hook. It's complete and utter chaos in that moment. Yep. And that's the biggest nightmare for any back of the house. So, you know, when I, when I joined the industry back in 2007, you know, digital ordering sales were like next to nothing, 0% for the majority. And when I left last year, from Olo at least, um, the average brand was something like 15 to 20%, with nearly a dozen brands processing over 50% of sales through digital channels. You know, that said, uh, with the really the increase in digital orders, the back of the house never kept up to keep up with it, right? And in that same show, The Bear, I actually just watched this last week, season two, episode seven. There's this episode where there's a lady in the back whose job is the kitchen orchestrator. You know, she's the eyes and the ears for the kitchen to keep it moving at this perfect pace. Like that's yep. the dream, right? And so in our new venture, we're looking to solve the same problem that we helped create really by helping restaurant operators be better equipped for this new omni-channel world, both from a digital and non-digital uh, perspective. Yeah, ah, that's one of the, my favorite shows, by the way. But yeah, it's just so stressful so to watch that. I don't run a restaurant, and I can tell you I feel PTSD just from watching that. Uh, and I know a lot of restaurant operators who do feel some severe PTSD with that scene. Um, all right, I, circling back to uh, sort of some trends in the industry, I feel like we can't mm -hmm. talk about food service tech without talking about automation and AI. You know, of course, everybody's talking about that. Most of the tech companies are talking about that or incorporating that. Um, sure. Where do you see AI and automation in the restaurant space right now? And what, what do you think a restaurant operator should be doing about it, especially in kind of this nascent kind of stage? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely still nascent. You know, at the same time, you know, machine learning and AI might just be the most significant game changer since the iPhone. Right. Yeah. Like, so it's early days. Right. But many of these AI driven companies, they're still finding their footing, but the potential here is just staggering. So that's on, let's call it the AI machine learning side on the automation front. You know, listen, within increasing wages, higher food costs, this is the future that the industry wants and the industry needs. And the brand that I'll call out is Sweetgreen here. You know, I think they've been a digital ordering pioneer and leader. At last earnings call, something like 65% of sales were processed digitally for them. And so they also have now the opportunity to be an automation leader. I loved the example of the store they opened in uh, Naperville, in Illinois. Two years ago, they acquired a company called Spice out of Boston to really automate that salad making process. And I expect for Sweetgreen, you know, there's a real path to deploying this tech in all new locations going forward, but also going back and retrofitting the 100 plus locations you know, that they've already opened over the next few years. And so I think about that use case, but of course for Mexican, for pizza, for sandwiches, yeah. and the list goes on. So you know, sticking to that theme really of the back of the house, this feels like the big opportunity and unlock for the industry. So going back to food and labor, these are the two most expensive line items outside of rent, right? So there's an opportunity, think about this, right? An AI co-pilot to be deployed at the store that really replaces the assistant general manager role. I think this is a role that typically averages about $50,000 a year or the person who is responsible for ordering food and scheduling shifts. You know, restaurants, 
still order food and staff up as if there's like a 200 person party coming every night, even if 50 people show up. And so that right. problem goes away here with AI, with machine learning uh, and automation, right? So on the contrary, kind of flipping to the other side, I'd say we're hearing about some AI being deployed today in restaurant tech that in our opinion is not ready for prime time. And I'll point here to voice AI for drive-through. So mm -hmm. voice AI, you know, we've, spoken to a dozen companies here in the space. I think each of them has a target on the drive-through for obvious reasons. It's, it's, the, it's a massive total addressable market. And that makes total sense, right? But um, at the same time, it's a super complex problem. And the best companies are getting it right 85 to 90% of the time. And that's just not good enough, right? At scale. And so that's what success looks like in this category. And even with outsourced workers who are listening into every interaction uh, in some other country, that's ultimately what's happening and kind of what we're seeing, right? So in other words, like when the robot messes up that 10 to 15% of the time, the staff, the customers, they don't want to use the robot again. You can see this in our own daily interactions with chatbots. Like when it's not working, I'm just like, human, 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 give me the human, right? And, uh, you know, we're just seeing that these systems right now, at least again, are fragile, they're susceptible to all sorts of errors. So to take a look at Apple, right? There were several smartphones beforehand, namely Palm and BlackBerry, but the iPhone blew everyone out of the water. You know, take a look at Facebook. They were far from the first social media network really before they won. And so the point here is that in most instances, it's not going to be the first generation of these players that actually win. It's typically the third or the fourth or even the sixth. And I think that's our current state, uh, at least the state of voice AI. Yeah. So um, that's kind of what's happening. I think you know, listen, as an operator, there's a few things that you can do and as a brand. I think on the operator side, we would recommend that you just stay connected and try to follow the bleeding edge companies. You know, mostly these are the large companies that are making the investments now and try to see what they're doing before making the investment yourself, right? Say, so talk to peers in the industry, go to the industry conferences. And in the meantime, what you can do personally is really incorporate generative AI into your own daily process. You'll know, figure out how you yourself could be more efficient and understand how it could help. You know, for, for example, for me, I change my browser so that every time I open up a, a new tab, ChatGPT opens up. So for me, it just forces the behavior. Like normally I would normally go to uh, Google for that, right? But now I'm going to ChatGPT and, and trying to use it more. And so um, I think at the same time at the, the brand level, now try to talk to your GMs, try to talk to your franchisees. And if you want to play around and pilot something, you know, identify one to two specific challenges that they're having and give your best ones that you trust an AI or an automation tool so that they can report back to you and that you can inform your franchisee and your, your restaurant base of it. And yeah. so that's that. And then, you know, if you are, I'd call it um, a restaurant brand that's bleeding edge, you should actually consider hiring a AI integration specialist or a consultant there. So that person's role is largely um, taking AI into your organization, into your existing like systems and processes, and really seeing how they can optimize operational efficiency and see if you can get an edge on the competition. So that feels like it's gonna be a common role, just like it is for having an IT team at any company. Sure, yeah, I know it's great feedback.
Um, Juwan, I, I, I get for a lot of times uh, from emerging brands questions about their mm-hmm. tech stack. You know, tech stack itself, I think even pre-COVID, I didn't know that term tech stack, right? <laughs> I'm not in the tech world. But yeah, here we are. This is a household term because, uh, you know, I mean, really, it refers to just really how deep technology is getting into the restaurant industry. But a lot of people are just curious about, you know, how do I build my tech stack? What's the right way to do this? I'm I'm curious to get some of your advice, maybe the do's and don'ts of building a tech mm-hmm. stack, especially from an emerging restaurant operator. Yeah. Well, yeah, let's put ourselves in the kind of eyes and, you know, mind of the emerging operator. I would think about, you know, a couple, a few do's and a few don'ts, right? So let's say, say on the do side, you got to, as an emerging operator, distinguish between must-have versus nice-to-have tech. And you got to just talk to uh, people at the store level, right? The employees there, the GMs there, try to understand their pains, and then talk to your customers on what they want from your brand, right? Just try to simplify that. And then number two, prioritization is key here. You know, that tech company should have a track record, number one, of integration. They should have a track record of stability, and they should have financial health, right? So choose a tech company that can scale, just like as your business grows. And ideally, you want to choose a provider that's already done the integrations into your existing systems and try not to have them, you know, goof around and play with that as the first project. And so from a financial health perspective, you just got to make sure that the company that you're going with is going to be there in 12 to 18 months. And which I mentioned earlier, in some cases, it may not be the case. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, from a, from a dues perspective, also number three, you think about digital IQ, right? That phrase from a digital ordering perspective, it's important to know the metric on what percentage of your sales are coming from your direct digital channels and what percentage of your sales are coming from the indirect pers- channels. Think about DoorDashes and Uber Eats. The uh, direct channels are the most profitable, valuable customers that you can retain data on. And you want that number to be higher than the indirect side, right? That's the sign mm-hmm. of success from a digital IQ perspective. So, you know, those are the tips for do. I'd say on the don'ts, um, you know, again, don't overcomplicate it. Don't, you know, go with too many solutions, right? A stack really becomes a stack then. And uh, it could be overwhelming to manage and maintain. I'd say, you know, experimentation is good, but too many pallets aren't good for anyone. And it could actually do more right. harm than good, uh, especially when you're, when you're operating with a lean team. And so that's one. I'd say number two is don't build software unless it's going to give you a strategic edge. You know, it's my hmm. belief that one day everything will be 100% SaaS. And it makes little to no sense to build tech that exists off the shelf today, unless again, it's gonna give you some strategic edge, right? So save yourself the pain and buy over build all day. Um, and then uh, the third thing is just when you do agreements with these providers, make sure you sign them and make sure that they have SLAs, service level agreements inside those agreements. So you buy technology for performance and you should use it as a utility. And when there's an outage or when there's an issue, you gotta make sure that you understand who's at fault and that there is a clear clawback if you're owed money and just don't accept finger pointing across your providers. You gotta ask for accountability here and have that clear in your contracts. So I'd say those are you know kind of three simple tips across the board. Great tips, incredible. Um, and, and, you know, staying on the trend of the tech stack, Joanne, my last question for you. Um, 
and, and really kind of the million dollar question for somebody in your business, certainly, um, but even for restaurant operators, you know, how do how does the food service tech stack evolve going forward? Because it's really hard to look into your crystal ball and know where tech goes from here. Um, but mm-hmm. I have I have to imagine you know a few things about where, what you think about the direction, I guess, of the restaurant tech stack in general. Where do you see it going? How do you see it evolving? Yeah, well, this will be fun. I think about the point <laughs> of sale will no longer be the central heartbeat of a restaurant technology okay. ecosystem. Okay. And so... You know, listen, we're already at a point where today's newer point of sale companies differ greatly from the traditional point of sale companies that we grew up with. You know, for instance, Toast, they generated 82.4% of their revenue from payments as of last quarter. So folks like Toast and, and Square, their payment processors really disguised as point of sale providers at the end of the day. And by definition, right, the point of sale to be where the majority of the transactions are occurring for brands, yep. right? And we believe mm-hmm. that over the next five years, that the majority of transactions in our industry will occur through digital and indirect digital channels. So the digital ordering providers really represent the new point of sale for this next era. And so let's say now the points of sale are where now the orders are coming through. Think about in-store kiosks, think about mobile devices, think about personal computers, think about the drive-through, think about people calling a restaurant, think about the QR code at the table. You know, so in that world, again, over the past, over the next five years, the minority of customers will walk up and place an order the old-fashioned way. You know, I grew up in New York with the Easy Pass and growing up, we'd all wait in a line and we'd all give the toll booth operator our money. You know, when I last went to New York this past summer, there's literally no toll booth operators, right? And so I think that's the way that it's going. You know, everything gets a bit more personalized and more frictionless in the front of the house. And so, you know, if the think about the world where the digital providers are the point of sale, then the back of the house really needs to be a production kitchen that's optimized for the omni-channel world. And it feels like that back of the house is really made up of two components in the future. That's number one, an integrated production and order management operating platform. These pieces will include things like kitchen display systems, you know, sticky chip printers, uh, computer vision, and things like capacity management tools. And the goal of these tools, when you put it together, is really to help employees prepare the right food at the right place at the right time, regardless of where it came from, right? So that's the first component. I think the second component is really around tooling and AI for reporting, for scheduling, for inventory, and for labor, right? So in that world, the point of sale that we traditionally know becomes sort of a simple calculator and a sales tax engine. And I'm not saying that they're not going to be important. It's just saying that they're no longer going to be the nucleus, right? And this uh, move away from the point of sale being the center of the restaurant ecosystem really should actually open up the best of breed ecosystem again over the next five years, where that pendulum will swing back from the operating platforms that I referred to earlier. So mm-hmm. I think the, listen, the historical problem here and the bearish view on this is that, you know, there's too much tech and managing these providers are a burden. And, you know, I think that's where machine learning and AI, right? Those two things specifically, the technologies we're reading about every day can have a huge impact in the restaurant world. You know, just think about this, right? Like every platform today, right, that an operator chooses has an API, an advanced programming interface. And that cap- that API is capable of connecting and integrating into other systems that have APIs. And right. 
historically and, and currently, by the way, the challenge is that tech providers don't play well together and there's people in the middle, right? There's engineers and customer success managers that need to get in the way and really manage relationship, you know, keys for the platform and problems. Um, but when these systems actually work and integrate the way that they're supposed to, operators are the one that get the best outcomes. It increases sales, it drives efficiencies, like that's the win-win. So yeah. with machine learning and AI, um, the rate of change here is unbelievable, right? Mm -hmm. And as these systems get smarter and smarter, we believe there is an opportunity to disintermediate the humans and the manual problems and errors that come with today's best of breed systems and allow for really autonomous interoperability. So think about this, you know, the systems are going to speak to each other without the humans and they're going to auto resolve problems and optimize their configuration without the, the, the stuff that happens today. So it's this um, collection of like finely integrated systems that'll remove the POS from the center of the tech stack. And it's going to, at the end of the day, give the operator what they want. The operator, yeah. they want the freedom of the freedom of choice and they want democratized systems that ensure that they're actually running the most profitable tech stack for their operation, period, right? And so, you know, from a labor perspective, if machine, machine learning and AI are actually used right within an organization, it's not hard to imagine that the average worker becomes 20% more efficient annually, right? Yeah. And if you compound that growth over the course of five years, we're talking about 100% greater efficiency per employee, right? So you know, that's the opportunity, right? Like, you know, so we think, you know, it's in 2023, 2024, strap up, it's going to be tough. You know, it's going to be tough for the majority of our industry, those stakeholders, but uh, no doubt, due to these advancing technologies, our industry will come out stronger, and we're here for it. Ooh, man, it's like uh, it's like drinking from a fire hose over here with uh, all that information. Uh, Juwan George, co-founder of Eight Five Eight Partners. Juwan, as always, pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for sharing your insights. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sam. See you at Create.